let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you once again for uh, this morning, a chance to worship and sing and pray to you, and now uh, a chance to together look to your word. Uh, we pray that you would teach us this morning uh, by your spirit, Lord, would you open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear. God, we pray that you would um, direct our time, remove distractions from our hearts, help us hear your voice uh, clearly from your word. God, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, hey, good morning once again, and uh, welcome to FPC. We're so glad you're here. My name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors, and we just want to say again, we are so glad that you are with us, and we want to invite you now, if you have a Bible, to join us in the book of Acts, chapter 2, starting in verse 14. That's where we're going to be continuing uh, our relatively new sermon series. I think this is week five or six uh, in the book of Acts. Last week, we took a break, and hope you got to hear from Pastor Gabe last week, our guest speaker from New City Church, Oakland. He did an incredible job, and if you missed the message, go on our website. We have the audio available from last week. It was so, so good. I would really hope that you can check that out. Uh, but today, um, you're stuck with me again, and the book of Acts we're jumping into. So, um, hey, as you find Acts chapter 2, you know, when, when something happens for the very first time, it's often memorable for us, right? Firsts are important. Think of uh, firsts in your life, your first crush, your first kiss, your first uh, time driving after you got your license and it was just you and not your mom or dad in the car with you, uh, your first concert, hmm? mine, I think, I think, I don't say this proudly, but I think was Destiny's Child with Beyonce um, when I was like in junior high. I, I wouldn't say it unless it was true, people. I just, I just this is confession, that's, that's what it was. Um, your first concert, your first child, your first child was born. Um, first time going away to, to camp, first time at the ocean maybe, first time giving a big presentation at work, uh, first trip to, to Panda Express, whatever it is. Um, these big moments in our lives, your first, I remember my first sermon I gave, it was in college at InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, it was a large group gathering on campus, and I, I gave a sermon, I preached. Um, it was about prayer, I used a Will Ferrell video clip, guys, it was, I don't know how it went, it probably wasn't great, but I, I, I gave it a shot. Um, so, firsts are important. We see this morning in the Bible um, a first, uh, the first recorded evangelistic sermon by an apostle. Acts chapter 2, Peter is going to stand up and give a sermon. This is the first recorded sermon we have uh, by an apostle after the ascension of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit, where he's declaring, hey, everybody, listen up to the crowds. Here's who Jesus is. So our text this morning, it's a sermon by Peter. And so what I'm doing then is giving a sermon about a sermon. Um, and the heart of the sermon, Peter's sermon, really is this question. Is Jesus who he said he is? Is Jesus really who he says he is? Right? It's, a, it's a question the crowds were asking and wondering. It's, it's the same question we all wonder about today. How do we know that all of this we declare and read and believe about Jesus is actually true? I mean, if someone asked you that question, how do you know? How would you respond? What would you say? I think often we would 
many of us would respond with a, you know, a personal anecdote. Hey, here's how I know Jesus is real in my life. What I've experienced, the love of God I've experienced as I've come to Jesus. That is fantastic and super important to share our testimony, what God has done in our life. Absolutely. But what we see this morning in the text is not as much uh, personal experience, um, kind of subjective experience. What we see Peter doing is talking about objective reality and making some clear arguments from, from prophecy and from history that, hey, this isn't just true for me. This is true for all people everywhere. This really all happened in history. And it's like a sermon and a half, guys. It's a, it's a big sermon. So we got some ground to cover. So let's, let's get it going. You, um, Peter has a lot to say. Verse 14, here's how he starts. Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Love that, right? <laughs> Great line. Um, the apostles, think about context. They're gathered together after the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. The Holy Spirit has just uh, come upon them um, in, in, at Pentecost, right? Uh, chapter 2 starts this way. They're speaking in different languages. People hear them uh, in their own language and, and wonder what in the world is going on that these Galilean uh, Galileans are able to speak in different languages. It's a clear move of the Spirit. The apostles are trying to make sense of it along with them. And Peter stands up and he gives this sermon to everybody. Hey, here's what this means. Let me interpret it all for you, he says. And to start, he says, hey, to the scoffers and the doubters and the skeptics, because there were some, right? At the end of last week, we talked about it, how some heard all this, saw all this commotion, and they were like, these people must be drunk. So Peter starts by saying, hey guys, um, give us a little credit. It's only nine in the morning. <laughs> They're not drunk as some of you think. Uh, here's actually what's happening. And he, he's going to point back to the Old Testament. Look what he says in verse 16. He says, no. Again, they're not drunk. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter's saying, hey guys, listen up. Everything we're seeing happening right now is what Joel, the prophet, said would happen. And he quotes here from Joel chapter 2, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, to show them that, hey, what's going on with Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and now the coming of the Spirit? This is fulfilled prophecy. If you're a note taker, that's point one. Fulfilled prophecy. Back in the Old Testament, Joel anticipated this day of the Lord when, when God in the future would pour out his spirit. And verse 17 says it'll be on all people, sons and daughters. It'll be on young and old alike, servants and everybody else. So in other words, uh, the, the spirit of God is going to be poured out uh, and will not discriminate based on gender or age or social status. But young and old sons and daughters together would be filled with the Spirit. And this is that moment where the Spirit of God comes upon his church and the, and the Spirit of God fills his church. 
And we live now in, in the, the church age where the Spirit is not just active in certain times and certain places for certain tasks, but the Spirit is poured out upon all believers, all followers of Jesus. Notice in the text when it says all of this will take place. Verse 17, Peter adds this phrase to the Joel text. He says, in the last days, it says. Are we living in the last days? I mean, sometimes when we think of the last days or the end times, we're like, that's an exclusively future reality. Like one day when, when Jesus, you know, is about to come back, things will get harder or worse as we get closer. But according to Peter, he says with the coming of the Spirit, now we're already in the last days. And we have been for about 2,000 years. In the last days, he says, all of this will happen. So we're, we're in it now, this, this last era of history, the age of the church and the spirit as we await the return of Jesus. This should make us, uh, it should give us a sense of urgency as we go about the Lord's business, as we share the gospel, as we make disciples, we should up and about the Lord's work. He continues, look at what else he says in verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So he's still connecting it to the Joel prophecy. Joel spoke about wonders and signs in, in the heavens, or wonders in the heavens, signs below. And Peter says, hey, guys, let's think about the ministry of Jesus. We saw some signs and miracles, didn't we? We saw the wind and the waves obey his voice. We saw him raise people from the dead. We saw him heal people with a touch, with a word. We saw when he died on the cross, the earth shake and the sun was darkened, and now we've seen it, Pentecost, fire falling from heaven. All these signs showing that what Joel said would happen is now being fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. But instead of receiving and welcoming this Jesus, what does Peter say? He says, actually, Jesus was crucified the Jewish leaders, the Roman leaders alike, with the enthusiastic consent of the people. But this was not a surprise, verse 23 says. This was according to the deliberate plan of God for salvation. Though wicked and carried out by wicked men, the death of Christ was God's deliberate plan for salvation. We talked about this a few weeks ago, didn't we? We went into this for a little more time looking at how the, the sovereign will of God and human responsibility uh, are both seen in Scripture. We make decisions and have choices and take action, and it, it, it matters what we do. And yet, ultimately, the, the will of God will be done. His sovereign will moves forth. And it's sometimes hard for us to do all the math on that and see how it adds up, but we see it here taught. So we have this prophecy about this coming of the Spirit, signs and wonders in the last days being fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. But there's more here. But wait, there's more. Keep, continue. Resurrection. Look at verse 24. But God raised him from the dead. 
He didn't stay dead, right? Freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, and here's another Old Testament quote from the Psalms. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Okay, so stay with me. Trace the flow of thought here. His argument, hey, Jesus rose from the dead. God raised him to life. Verse 25 is talking about how David, way back in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, actually said this would happen. Psalm 16, he quotes here, and it says, of one that that could say, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. That's the Psalm he quotes. Or you will not let your holy one see decay. But Peter's point is that David wasn't talking about David. He wasn't talking about himself. He was pointing forward, talking about someone else. Look at him continue in verse 29. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. David wasn't talking about himself because he's dead and his tomb is right over there. We all know about it, right? That's what he's saying. But, verse 30, he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned, there it is, to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised, who? This Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it. See what he's saying? David wrote about his body not seeing decay, but David wasn't talking about himself in Psalm 16. No, he looked forward to a day. When God would do this in verse 31, he, he spoke in advance about the resurrection of the Messiah, how he would not be abandoned to the realm of the dead. And that prophecy was then fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. You, you see the theme of, of the message so far that Peter is trying to get across? God, through his prophets, said all of this was going to happen. Just as we're seeing it unfolding, God said this would happen. The outpouring of the Spirit. Joel talked about the Jesus ministry of miracles, his death and resurrection. But wait, there's more, Peter says. He continues, verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, And yet he said, here's our third Old Testament quote for the morning from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He's quoting Psalm 110 that David wrote. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The Lord would come and be exalted and ascend and sit at the right hand of the Father. But remember, he's like, hey, David's tomb is right over there. David is still dead. So not only did David not have a resurrection, but also now David did not ascend to heaven. But who did? Jesus, he says. As we read about in Acts chapter 1, it was Jesus who ascended to heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. You see, you see the connection he's making. The outpouring of the Spirit, Jesus' ministry of miracles and death and resurrection, even his ascension, God said all of this would happen by his prophets. And now Jesus is the one who is fulfilling all of these prophecies. 
He's trying to help them connect the dots to see that Jesus is the Messiah that he claimed to be. And there's more than just a few prophecies. Believe me, we, there's a few, there's three Old Testament references that, that Peter makes in this sermon here. Uh, but, but there's really I mean, hundreds if you look at the Old Testament and seeing how Jesus fulfilled them all. Scholars have looked at the Old Testament and, and cataloged the prophecies that were pointing forward to the Messiah and seeing how Jesus has fulfilled or will fulfill them all. They, they talk about the birth of the Messiah, um, the death of the Messiah, the ministry of the Messiah, of course, the identity of the Messiah. Actually, scientists, uh, this was a number of years ago, uh, looked at, hey, let's just take, because uh, some people will hear that and be like, Isn't, I mean, couldn't he have just like by coincidence fulfilled a lot of these prophecies, you know, like born in Bethlehem? A lot of people were born in Bethlehem. You know, a lot of them just kind of, some coincidences happened and that's kind of why. But, but some scientists looked at this and said, hey, let's look at the probability. If we were to just take, they said, just eight of, the, eight of these prophecies about the Messiah, and they picked eight of them, if we were to just take these eight, what would be the likelihood that one man would come and fulfill all eight? And they found, they did the math, and they checked their math twice. Um, chances were uh, one in 10 to the 17th power. Like that's how likely it would be. Your chances would be, you know, not one in, one in 10 or one in 100, one in 10 to the 17th power power, um, that's meaning 17 zeros on the 10. Um, just try, that's a lot of zeros. Okay, I'm not a mathematician. That's a big number. That, the, the odds aren't good, let's just say. And they said, uh, so to try and like uh, visualize what that would mean, they said, you know, 10 to the 17th power, that big number, if you took um, that many silver dollars, let's say, and you threw them all down at the state of Texas. I don't know why they chose Texas, but they said, hey, let's just throw them down in the state of Texas. Those silver dollars would cover the entire state uh, two feet deep in silver dollars. Okay, so picture that. The whole state of Texas, it's big over there in Texas, they say, and two feet deep covered in silver dollars. Now, they said, we're gonna mark one of them. Imagine you mark one of them. This is the one. We're going to throw it out there somewhere in the state. And then we're going to uh, blindfold a man, spin him around, and give him a couple shots of espresso. And he's gonna, we're going to send him off and say, you get one chance to grab the silver dollar that's marked. Go, good luck. That would be the likelihood. Him picking the right one out of the whole state of Texas of two feet deep of silver dollars, that one person would be able to come and fulfill even eight of these prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And he did them all. Peter's showing us Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. He is the one. So Peter's passionate preaching at Pentecost. Uh, say that five times. Peter's passionate preaching at Pentecost. Peter's passionate preaching at Pentecost about prophecy. Um, it was not just about prophecy. He also wants us to know about, here you see it, real history. You see that in the text? Not just fulfilled prophecy, but real history. Look at him uh, in verse 22. We already read it, but he said, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. You see what he's saying to the crowds? God did all this among you. You witnessed the miracles the ministry, the signs, as you yourselves know, you've, you've seen it. 
And not just his ministry, but also his resurrection. Look at verse 31. It says, seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. God the Father has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of it. We've all seen it. There's that witness language again, right? What does a witness do? They speak of what they've seen and heard. They, they testify to their experience and what they've seen take place. It's often a legal term, one speaking before a court. It reminds us of uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus told his apostles they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But he's saying, as you yourselves have seen, and we are all witnesses of these things that have happened. So I just want you to notice, just see with me, that the apostles cared about documenting and passing on real history. Reliable historic details and events. In other words, this, this isn't a story that they just made up, you know, cooked up in a basement somewhere and started selling. Uh, this, this wasn't uh, fabricated they cared about, hey, this actually happened. Remember last week, Pastor Gabe uh, from 1 John chapter 1 talked about this, how the book of 1 John uh, in chapter 1 starts by saying, hey, this that we have seen, we've seen with our eyes, and we've, we've touched with our hands. He's basically saying we've, we've witnessed it, we've experienced it, we've looked at it. We were eyewitnesses of all of this. And this is so important because one of those narratives we all hear maybe like floating around today about the Bible or about the Gospels in particular is that, uh, well, you know, sure, Jesus was a guy, um, but he's more myth than history. He's more legend. You know, his followers got a little carried away somewhere down the road and started kind of, you know, fabricating some of the stories. The stories got embellished. Some people even say, um, you know, Jesus didn't think he was God. He didn't think he was the Messiah. That's just something, you know, people added later to the story. And again, it's really hard to hold that position if you actually read the New Testament. It's like, it's, it's right there. Uh, but but, but you know, you've heard that narrative, right? But we see in, in the text, in the New Testament, that with the accounts of Jesus and the resurrection, that the apostles really cared about showing people, proving to people, hey, this actually happened. In real time and space history, there were eyewitnesses. Go and talk to the eyewitnesses. Here's who was in power at the time. Uh, here's who you need to talk to. Hey, Joe was there. Ask Joe about it. Um, scholars like uh, Craig Blomberg, one of the top New Testament scholars in the world, has, has looked at the historical reliability of the Gospels and compared it with like myths or legends or the stories of the Greek gods or whatever. And he's shown that and discovered that with myths, Either they have like no verifiable historical reference at all, kind of like a Greek god, you know, there wasn't like a Zeus walking around, but they kind of just had this story that come up. Or there was like some kind of real historic figure. But again, like uh, centuries later, the story gets embellished and changes and you see some of these like exalted claims about them, that sort of thing. But he, he compares that to the New Testament documents that we have. And he says, with the accounts of the life of Jesus and the claims of the early church, we have nothing of the sort. We do not have anything close to some kind of mythological, slowly developing, evolving story over time. We have, from the earliest days of the church, 
the, the declaration that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus uh, rose from the dead and they, the eyewitnesses saw him alive. We have in the first evangelistic sermon recorded by an apostle, we have him saying, look guys, we, you saw this, we all saw this, we're all witnesses to it, this actually happened, documented. And the, the apostles over and over in the New Testament make references to this sort of thing. Guys, like, we're not just making up a cute story to make you feel better. Really, like really this happened. And, and I think this, when we grasp this, makes Christianity not only true, but it's, so, it's compelling to see that, that these are real events that, that really happened in real time and space history. And then it can then really impact your life. Because Jesus is real and alive and can, can encounter you today. And if it's not real, then we're all just wasting our time. The apostles bet their lives on this, went to their graves, uh, persecuted for this claim. And so then we today should continue to be just as passionate about preserving the apostolic gospel, passing down this message from generation to generation about the life and ministry and death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus as Lord. So Peter's trying to help the crowds and help us see who Jesus is. He's talking about fulfilled prophecy. He's talking about real history. But now he reaches a conclusion then, here it is, about Jesus' clear identity. All of this is leading to the exclamation point of his sermon. He puts it all together uh, in verse 36. Therefore, that's a conclusion word, right? Therefore, in light of everything we just talked about, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Here's the point he's been driving towards all along. Let everybody know this Jesus is Lord and Messiah. He's the exalted king of the universe. He's the one seated on the throne with power and glory and authority. He's the one we are to worship and bow down to and surrender to. And, and that declaration, Jesus is Lord, became one of the rallying cries, one of the earliest statements of faith uh, in the early church. This declaration, Jesus is Lord, meaning Caesar is not. Meaning Rome is not. Meaning Jesus is Lord and not anybody else. There's one king we serve with wholehearted devotion and commitment to this Jesus. And don't be mistaken, there... There is a battle, a spiritual battle, going on, raging even now for your allegiance and for your affections. And there's no neutral ground. Either Jesus is Lord or we are going to be called to believe that someone or something else is. Now, think about it this way. Jesus is Lord, so he, he deserves our allegiance. The only proper response to King Jesus is to bow down and surrender in worship. But I also want you to see that the rule and reign of Jesus is good for us. We talk about this a lot, right? Like, we should worship Jesus. We, we owe him our allegiance as the king of the universe, absolutely. But also, it's for our good and, and to our best interest to worship Jesus. David Foster Wallace um, is an author passed away, he, um, not himself a Christian, I think he's an agnostic, maybe even an atheist, but he wrote some, 
some pretty insightful things about faith and about Christianity. And, and he put it this way. He said, everybody worships. The choice we get is what or who to worship. Everybody worships. Whether or not you're religious, you're a churchgoer, uh, you're a Christian, whatever, uh, we all worship. We all bow down before someone or something. We, we all have a Lord or a master, and in essence, something that we give ourselves to, thinking that it will give us what we want. It will uh, bring life for us. It will allow us to flourish. We think that there's something we can surrender to and follow, and it's going to bring us fulfillment. Uh, it's going to bring us money. Uh, some of us uh, bow down to acceptance, like we, just, we serve the opinions of others. We need to have uh, the opinions of others satisfied so we can be okay. Some of us worship, again, beauty and physical health. Some of us uh, have given ourselves to some kind of political ideology. Some of us have, have bowed down and given ourselves to a person, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a fiance, a spouse, someone we think is going to fulfill us. Some of us, we give ourselves to a new kind of social movement out there in the world. Some of us worship power. You see, he's saying there's all these different things that we might give ourselves to. But he, he went on to say, anything you worship other than God will end up eating you alive. Amen. He said, anything you worship other than God will end up eating you alive. He says, it'll crush you. You'll be crushed under the weight because you'll never have enough, never be enough. The, the God that you try and serve will not actually deliver on its promises. You think you'll be heading towards the good life, but actually reap destruction and chaos and rob you of joy. Because other gods and things that we worship instead of God are not actually for us. They don't care about you. And so the only way to be free, liberated, to find true life and joy is by serving a Lord or a master who will liberate you rather than crush you, who will love you and give himself for you rather than expect you to pay the price for him. Do you realize that's what we have in Jesus? Jesus is Lord and he used his power and position and authority, and he came and he laid down his life for us. He says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. He said, he's the good shepherd who, who laid down his life for the sheep. And under the care of the good shepherd, then, we are uh, saved from death and judgment for our sin, and then we're fed and led to green pastures and still waters, and we're protected from wolves that seek to devour us. And we're known, and he calls us by name. Pastor C.H. Spurgeon, a Baptist pastor in England, told a story one time of um, there was a woman who owed some people a lot of money. And she heard a knock at her door one day and she didn't know who it was. And so she didn't answer the door. And the person stayed there and kept knocking. Kept knocking, 
She could tell the person was still out there. She just hid in her bedroom. Wouldn't answer the door. The person eventually left. She went about her business. That Sunday, she went to church. The pastor came up to her and said, hey, I came by your house this week and knocked on your door. And she said, tell me when. And he said the day and the time that he came by, and she realized, oh, that's who was at my door. And he said, what happened? Why did you answer? And she said, oh, I, I thought you were a debt collector coming to take money from me. And he told her the reason he was there the reason for his visit is he had felt the Lord lay it on his heart to bring her actually a large sum of money. He had felt the Lord say, hey, you need to go and give this money to this woman. He didn't know why or exactly, but he went to bring her, and he had with him at the door that money to give her, to bless her. But she stayed away because she thought that he was there to take something from her. And Spurgeon goes on to say, that's exactly how we relate with God sometimes. He comes to our door, and we think he's there to rob us of something, to take something from us, to take our joy, to hinder our fulfillment in life, and so we hide, and we run, and we stay away, and we don't answer the door. When he says to us, don't you see, I'm actually here to bless you. I'm here to bring you life. I'm here to help you flourish. I'm here because I care for you and love you. That's the kind of God we have in Jesus. He comes to our door and says, I want to bless you. I want to lead you and provide for you as a good shepherd. Would you let me? So contrary to popular opinion, to our own assumptions so often, living under the rule and reign of Jesus as Lord is good for us. It's best for us. Not only because of how he cares for us in, in life and, and, and leads us and, again, encourages our hearts, but also look at verse 21. Back to really, uh, I'd say, a heart of this text. Verse 21, the last line from the Joel prophecy. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and Jesus is Lord. Therefore, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. This is the way of salvation, right? This is the gospel. Not that we are saved when we, right, everyone who, you know, works for it uh, will be saved. Or everyone who jumps through, you know, the spiritual hoops in just the right way will be saved. Or everyone who, you know, cleans up their moral record enough will be saved or does enough good deeds will be saved. Or everyone who, you know, just pretends enough and the church people don't find out about their messy record, those people might kind of squeak in because we didn't, you know, the cat wasn't out of the bag yet. But again, realize that's, that's none of us. None of us come with a clean moral record. None of us come uh, before the Lord and will stand based on our own righteousness. We need a Savior. And so, so Peter is proclaiming to the crowd and the same message goes forth today, that today is the day of salvation. Call on the name of the Lord. We're saved not by works, but by grace. And we're going to look next week more closely at the response of the crowd. But in short, Peter calls them to repent, to be baptized, and to receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we see our greatest need is our debt of sin. We're deserving condemnation. We're actually dead in our sin before the Lord. 
But Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Peter makes clear, this is the message of salvation. Come and repent. Come and believe. Come and receive the forgiveness of your sins through the work of Jesus. So we have fulfilled prophecy. We have real history. We have a clear identity. And then the response is left up to us of what will we do with that? Uh, C.S. Lewis, famous author, and, and some others have put forth this, uh, our options when it comes to Jesus in alliterated fashion. He said, you have a few options when it comes to Jesus. You could declare that he's lunatic. The man was crazy. He, he thought he was Lord and Messiah, and he wasn't. And somehow he convinced a bunch of people to say that he was. That doesn't seem very likely. He says, okay, you could say that Jesus could be liar. He knew he wasn't God. He was of sound mind. He knew he wasn't the savior of the world, but he just lied and tricked a bunch of people into believing that he was. Again, doesn't seem very likely. Also, the same people that say that, uh, again, would have to reckon with the fact that Jesus, they would likely see him as some kind of great moral teacher, a virtuous you know, rabbi, something of that nature. But again, if he was a liar then he wasn't a great moral teacher. Okay, so that one kind of doesn't work. Lunatic, liar. Jesus could be a legend. Some fabricated myth made up, developed over time. We already talked a bit about how that, again, if you actually look at the history, look at the documents, look at the, um, the early church, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't hold weight. Lunatic, liar, legend. All that's left then, if it's not one of those, is to call him Lord. Just as Peter says, Jesus is Lord. He is who he says he is. And we're invited then to repent and believe and worship and surrender to this Jesus. So we're going to take communion together in just a moment as a response, as a church family. Um, we practice an open table here, which means even if you're visiting, if you're not a member, uh, if you are a follower of Jesus and you have put your faith in him as Savior and Lord, we invite you to participate with us. If that's not you and you're here, we're so glad you're here. You can just leave the elements where they are. Um, but I'm going to lead us in just a time of prayer before we take the elements. Uh, so would you, would you pray with me? And I invite you, if you'd like to, you can open your hands up uh, on your lap there as you sit as a way of uh, uh, saying, Lord, I come empty-handed and I come open to receive uh, from you. Lord, we, we come to you and, Lord, we, we don't want to forget the context of this passage, that it's here at Pentecost when your spirit is poured out, when, when your church is, is filled with the spirit and your love and your power, and men and women hear the message and they're, they're gripped and convicted in their hearts and they respond to you with repentance and faith and, and baptism. And so, Lord, we, um, we come and similarly, Lord, we as your church want to be filled with your spirit. Lord, we want more of you. And Lord, we know we're not here by accident, that you've called us here this morning. You want to meet with us. And, and Lord, you want to um, <laughs> lavish your love and grace upon us. And Lord, we admit and we confess that so often we just go about our lives with not much thought of you. We want to do things our own way. We want to do what we want to do and how we want to do it, Lord. And would you forgive us for our sin? 
And Lord, we want to open ourselves up to you now and say, Lord, would you come? And if there's a something we need to hear in this moment, God, would you convict our hearts where we need conviction? And Lord, for each weary person in this room that needs to be comforted, would you comfort them? And Lord, I pray that if, if, if any of us are here this morning and we're holding on to something that we shouldn't be, if we are refusing to surrender fully to you, maybe there's a, a, a possession that we're holding in our hearts and not giving over to you. Maybe there's a, a person or a relationship that we are holding on to and, and not letting you uh, speak into. Maybe there is um, a sin that is uh, secret and hidden that we have not brought to the light. Maybe there's an, an identity that we do not want to give up or give over, Lord. Um, if there's anything in our hearts that we, we say uh, is ours rather than yours, that we hold on to rather than surrendering it, I pray that right now, Lord, we would lay that down before you. And that we would declare, Jesus is Lord. Lord, you can have it all. You are the king. Lord, have your way in my life. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that they've never uh, repented and, and cried out to you for salvation, that, that now in this moment they would, would trust in you, Jesus. They would call out to you for the forgiveness of their sins and receive this new life and the gift of the Holy Spirit in your name. Lord, would you continue to do your work in our midst? Make us the people you want us to be for your glory and our good. And now, Jesus, we thank you for your broken body and your shed blood, these elements that we're about to take in remembrance of you. We thank you for the gift of salvation through your finished work on the cross. Thank you for dying for our sins and raising us to life. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. On well, the, the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me.